back to our series on conflict and conflict resolution. This, I think, is our 11th lesson, and it will be the last, uh, the last lesson we do on this, uh, this particular topic. Uh, but before we conclude this series, I wanted to take a quick look at what the Bible has to say about subjects of uh, personal preferences, convictions, gray areas, legalism, and such, uh, because this is a source of conflict um, in, in, in every church, really. It's a source of conflict uh, at times in our church. Uh, we strive as a church to uh, find balance in these things between those things that are essential to the Christian faith, uh, those things that are what we might call biblical convictions, and then we have our sort of uh, biblical beliefs, um, which are other doctrines, but not doctrines we would say are essential to necessarily being a Christian. Uh, they're not those gospel essentials. And then we have, of course, personal convictions and preferences. And so we're trying to, as a church, sort of, and as Christians, sort of balance those things out, which requires that we recognize the differences between personal boundaries, personal convictions, and such. Uh, so that we would have, as some have said through church history, unity in the essentials and flexibility in uh, the non-essentials. So uh, we want to recognize the differences between different kinds of convictions and differences between convictions and preferences so that we can, when we come together as the church, really truly worship God and celebrate the unity that we have in the gospel and in Christ uh, and cooperate together as the body of Christ in a way that leads to or guards the unity that we have in the Spirit. So that's sort of the way we're ending our study. We've talked about you know all of these, um, all the attitudes that we ought to have as believers towards one another. We've talked about some of the what you might call the method or even the mechanics of walking through relationships and specific conflicts. And just sort of ending this series on this note, we actually started into this last time. Uh, looking at these different uh, categories, sort of four categories, I think, that would be helpful for us to kind of uh, separate these different areas or these different uh, issues out. So we started last time talking about, uh, we, we, we looked at biblical uh, convictions over here in the upper right. That's the first one. Uh, these are doctrines that are held to be right or true by the church throughout the centuries, throughout church history. These are things that if we don't have these particular truths, then Christianity and the ability to honor God really no longer exist. And so churches have to form and rally around these things. These are, these are based upon Scripture. They are objective truths, and they are, we would say, black and white for all. These are not black and white for some. These are, these are essential things. And we kind of broke that into areas of theology uh, and areas of morality. So we've got doctrines such as the authority of Scripture and uh, the Trinity and who Jesus is, uh, his humanity and his deity, salvation by grace, uh, not by works. Regarding morality, we have things that are so clearly taught in Scripture that every Christian must agree on the, uh, these things, that they are sinful, uh, those issues of adultery and murder and lying. I mean, you go to the Ten Commandments to get a good sampling of that. Uh, these are biblical convictions. These are the, what well, we might say, the, the essential things, the things that we must, at a foundational level, believe about God and this sort of basic understanding that we must have about sin. Uh, we just don't, every Christian just doesn't decide for themselves what sin is, Right? 
Now, there would be some things, if we get into the, the details, and again, these would be really over in the area of personal convictions, but things that we, we say are sinful, but that really aren't that clear in Scripture. So they're sinful for us because they're personal convictions, but they're in areas of, we might call areas of Christian liberty or issues of conscience. Uh, sometimes we try to impose that on others, but we'll talk about how to hopefully navigate those, those waters. But these are the things that unify us. These are the essential things. So we, we looked at early on, you may remember one of the first, uh, first couple of weeks we started into this series. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, those first few verses. Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance or tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we went through and we sort of dissected those verses and talked about those, that predisposition that we should have in relationships, that we need to be gentle people, we need to be humble people, uh, we need to be striving to show tolerance, not tolerance for false doctrine, but tolerance in, in, in other ways. We didn't spend a lot of time looking at the verses that come right after that. But Paul basically, after mentioning in verse 3 the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, he then sort of describes what that is. So he's, he's just saying our unity, it, it, it is relational. I mean, there is a relational unity, but positionally we are unified as believers around a set of truths. There are, there are essential things that unite us together, that make us Christians. And then he talks about what these are. So you can look at verse 4, Ephesians 4. There is one body, he says, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul's basically saying... This is the basis for our unity. Our unity revolves around these, these kinds of, of teachings. The, the, the Trinity, the, tri, the triune God and God's plan of redemption. So he mentions here, most commentators break this out as he's talking about in the first, that first section talking about the Spirit in the next verse talking about Jesus Christ, in the next verse talking about God the Father. So he's actually talking about the Trinity and then the various uh, roles that they have in redemption. So they're, they're the Trinity equal in nature and unified in purpose, but different in their roles. And so Paul says this. He says that this is what we believe at its core about Christianity. We believe in the body of Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into that body. We believe that there is this, this hope, we have a hope, right? The hope of our calling. This is our inheritance that Paul talks about earlier in the book of Ephesians. And this inheritance is sealed to us by the Spirit. So that's, that's one of the things the Spirit does. He mentions that again in Ephesians 1. We, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in one faith. Or I might say this, this isn't talking about your personal faith in Christ. It's talking about that body of teaching revealed in the New Testament. And so we have this, we have, we have uh, th- that body of teaching is clear enough that we can distinguish who is in and who is out, 
right? So it's, 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 it's got to be clear enough to where John can come back in First in John and say, if these individuals reject the faith, the body of teaching that we pass to you, then they are of this kind. It's like you ha- this has to be a fixed thing, a set thing in order to even make that distinction. So there is this one body of teaching, sound doctrine. There's one baptism by which we identify with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And there is one God and Father. That is to say, or Bruce Ware has written a lot on this in the Trinity, but he, his little phrase is, The Father established redemption, the Son accomplished redemption, the Spirit applies redemption to the believer's life. So those are, those are essential things. If you do not believe those things, then you are not a Christian. <laughs> right? I mean, you have to believe those things. You have to answer at some point in your Christian life, what must a person believe to be saved? And it's actually a little more com- complicated than you might think. You know, it's like, well, they just have to believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Well, you do know that to believe that is true, there's other things you have to believe, right? So who cares if Jesus died on the cross if you don't believe that you're a sinner, right? So it's like there there, there are certain things that you're sort of assuming when you say, well, you only have to believe that. And so at some point you have to be able to define what is it that a person must believe in order to be saved, and if they don't believe or if they reject one of these things, they cannot, be, they cannot be a Christian. Because I think what we want to do sometimes in the church today is so simplify that, that, again, we can give people in 15 seconds everything they need to know about Christianity and then lead them through a prayer and everything's fine, right? But not really explain terms, not really explain our presuppositions and all that kind of stuff. So these are the essential things. Okay, second category is what I would call, see, we went too far there. Yeah, biblical convictions, come on, here we go. Biblical, biblical beliefs, biblical beliefs. These are the things that can be demonstrated in Scripture, but are non-essential, providing room for different theological positions. So, that is to say that true Christians... True believers in Christ may disagree on these theological beliefs or systems of beliefs, and they're still Christians, okay? And some churches, we said, form around these things, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? The key is that we don't, again, we don't take these issues and divide from other Christians over these, these areas. So we gave some examples, you know, issues of, you know, again, last things, church government, spiritual gifts, baptism, those kinds of things. And, um, you know, I, I just I tried to make clear that, that what I'm not saying is that these aren't important, right? These are important things. Where you land on these doctrines will affect your Christian life, okay? They will have an effect on the way that you live. They will affect the, the decisions that you make in your Christian life. They are things that you must study. They are things that you must apply, and they are things that will affect your sanctification. Okay? They are going to affect your sanctification. But they are not things that we must believe and agree on to be saved or justified. Right? And they are not things that we break fellowship over as followers of Christ. So we've just got to know that there's another evangelical church in town that, doesn't ha- that has a different doctrinal statement than Faith Community Church. 
right? Because in our doctoral statement, we spell out what we believe and teach about these, what we might say, secondary doctrines or tertiary issues. We spell that out. Not every church in the community is going to agree on that, but we need to know if that church is truly evangelical, (laughs) right? Are they a gospel-preaching, teaching church? Do they embrace the essential things? We need to know, we need to be able to say that or not, right? Or we could look at another church in town and maybe say, you know what? That's not a gospel-preaching church, right? They might even agree with us on some of the tertiary issues, or some of the moral stands, right? They might take some of the same stands we would take, but they might be leaving out the gospel essentials, right? So you've got to be able to make these distinctions or else you're going to be not sort of separating from the people you need to separate from and you're going to be separating from maybe individuals you shouldn't separate from, right? And so we need to be very clear about what we mean by gospel essentials. What makes a Christian a Christian? The third, yes, sir. Uh, it could be some, there could be some moral, you're talking about where that you have a true a Christian that has different morals, or are you saying the moral issue shouldn't be something well, I that Yeah, I mean, it's, as I'm saying, it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes. I mean, there are those, I think, obvious things. You know, there are immoral things that I think all Christians, this is, this is just immoral, period. I mean, we don't want to, I think even Ashley made the comment, if you're not careful, it almost sounds like you're saying that it's all just up in the air. Like what you call sin and what you don't call sin. And I'm saying that, no, we, there is a line. There is a line doctrinally. There is a line morally, where you are sinning or not sinning. But I'm saying there are certain things. I mean, this is where you have it. You, you, depending on your background, uh, depending on how you were taught, you know, you were taught that certain things were sinful. <laughs> I mean, that aren't, we say, that aren't actually sinful. But for you, they are sinful. If, you were, if your conscience has been trained to believe something is sinful, then for you to do it and violate your conscience is a sin even though the thing itself is not sinful. Because if you believe in your conscience something is a standard and you purposefully jump over your conscience to do it, then you have a rebellious heart. So in your heart, you're sinning. But yet you can't take that and then tell someone else, you have to do what I do. And they say, well, that's not, that's not a sin for me. So it's, it's tricky. I mean, when you get into those areas... Uh, that's why I say I think the Ten Commandments is a good place to go because it's, it, it, it covers a, a, a lot of the, at least from the moral, those moral issues, there's some pretty clear, clear gu- guidelines. Yes? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, but you, it's, hard, it's hard to, I don't know if you can make that clear of a distinction, because when you're talking about biblical beliefs, you, one of those beliefs is the doctrine of sin. You see what I'm saying? Or that is a foundational belief. That goes, when you start talking about believing in Christ, for what reason? Well, because I'm a sinner. Well, how do you know that? What do you mean you're a sinner? What, what is sin? Then you have to define theologically what that is, but obviously there's a moral component to that as well. So what I'm saying is there are things that make us Christians, and then there are things that we differ on that we shouldn't shy away from discussing or, you know, I mean, we need to be able to articulate what we what, we, what these things are, these biblical beliefs are, to other Christians. We need to dialogue over those things. You'll find yourself changing over the years, right, in some of those areas. I mean, there, were, there are things that I believe now about the church that I did not believe about the church as far as the doctrine of the church 20 years ago. My view of the church has changed, but I've been a Christian all along. You know, but my view of who Jesus is it has not changed, Right. My, hopefully my esteem of who Jesus is has gone up and my knowledge of Christ has been deepened, but it's not like I believe in a different Jesus now than when I first was saved, right? So I'm just saying, and again, I'm trying to bring this practically down to the issue, this issue of conflict, right? Because what happens in this area right here is people, Christians fight, right? Christians fight over these issues. They don't discuss these issues. They don't sort of sharp, iron sharpening iron kind of discussion, right? They actually are become very judgmental, very critical, very ugly, right? And, and they do this in person. They do this online. They do this in a lot of different ways. And I'm saying that's unfortunate that we're attacking other believers over these issues. So we need to know where we stand. We need to understand where these other, what these other views are. And it's not wrong for me to try to persuade someone in these areas to grow in that and maybe come over time over to my position on that if I believe that my position is rooted in, in the Bible, right, if it's, if it's biblical. Um, but I don't want to break fellowship over that, right? I don't, I don't want to treat another Christian like they're a second-class citizen of the kingdom because they don't agree with me on the tribulation. You know, it's like I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I want to talk about that. I want to know why they believe what they believe, and I want to be able to defend what I believe, and I want to go deeper in those things. But we've got to be careful about when these things lead to that James 4, why are there conflicts, why are there quarrels, right? I mean, we've got to be really careful about that. Uh, this third, third uh, category is, is personal convictions. Uh, these are things that are based upon scriptural truth, and applied to an individual believer's life. And they provide boundaries for an individual to live a godly life. We might call them spiritual preferences. So they address the matter of how God wants me to live in the gray areas of life that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture, which is why it is problematic for some churches to form and rally around these issues because they are not that clear in Scripture. So... Again, the danger here is that a church sort of, the, the, the identity of a local church is around this stuff rather than on those other, those first two things, right? So, and you guys, I mean, I, I, probably examples were going off in your own mind of, of, of how that happens sometimes and plays out uh, in a local church. But the, these are my personal convictions, my perception of things I should do or not do for which there are no direct biblical commands or prohibitions. 
So it's my personal sense of what is right or wrong for me based upon inferences I have made from the Bible. So when the Bible forbids adultery, we said it's not a matter of personal conviction. That is a command, right? (laughs) So it's just simply a matter of obedience or disobedience. And a personal conviction is not a personal, well, we'll go on to say a personal preference, uh, which we all have, right? Preferences and activities and food and such. Um, but this is rather a personal value. And if I violate one of my own values, is that it is a sin for me. Okay? Now, so what are some examples? We threw out a bunch of them, education choices, vaccinations. Uh, I added this one. Splenda, stevia, sugar in the raw, or no sweetener? Right? You would like to think that Christians don't have an opinion about those kind of things, but actually they do have sometimes very strong opinions about that. Should we have sweeteners? And if we should, what kind should they be? Medications or don't use medications, music, movies, clothing, different things uh, like that. But there are, there are several teachings in the Bible that are, not, or that, are, that, are, that are clearly articulated with little or no dispute. Again, such things as uh, fornication, lying, and stealing... We don't have to extensively investigate the Bible in order to figure out the Bible's position on those things, and that's why we call them black and white areas. Uh, But there are many issues the Bible does not take an absolute stand on, and for that reason, we often refer to them as gray areas. So gray areas are issues that Scripture does not take a dogmatic stance on, or at the very least, issues that Scripture does not discuss in depth. Instead, the Bible gives Christians the liberty to make God-honoring decisions that are based on their personal convictions, right? So this, this is where it gets a little sticky for us, and this is where Christians can get caught up in hurtful uh, debates and, and sinful uh, conflicts. And that is sometimes because we blur the understanding of spiritual preference versus spiritual principle. So spiritual preference concerns gray areas, but spiritual principle concerns the black and white. Well, how does that happen? Well, spiritual principle is a is teaching that is specifically found in Scripture. For example, the First Thessalonians 4, I think we may have mentioned this last time, verse 3, Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, who do not know God. So you read that and you realize sexual immorality is not a gray area. Okay? Sexual immorality is not a gray area. So there's no ambiguity here and therefore there's no room for freedom in that because it's clearly wrong to fornicate, right? Um, And in those areas where there's clear spiritual principles, we are called to speak the truth, to, to lovingly, again, correct a brother or sister who is acting against a principle clearly taught in Scripture. On the other hand, a spiritual preference is a believer's decision to do or not do something based on personal convictions in tandem with their freedom found in Christ and the fact that Scripture has left them with the responsibility to decipher what is most God glorifying. 
So we have this example that if, a, if one believer decides to refrain from kissing until they get married. So they're an engaged couple, Christian couple, they decide not to do that. And then you have this other Christian couple who's engaged and they decide to kiss on their third date. The question is, is one believer more right or godly than the other? And I would say no. Not, not based on that simple fact alone. Because the Bible says nothing on that specific topic. Therefore, there's freedom for the individual to choose what is best. Now, again, there's other principles, right? There's principles that come into play here. All right, but we have to stay with the principles. Um, so, if you so, sort of continue that example, it is fine for a Christian to choose not to kiss until marriage. However, when that same person begins to tell others that kissing before marriage is sinful or somehow less spiritual, they are making their spiritual preference a spiritual principle, therefore putting others in unnecessary and unbiblical shackles. So we, we, just, we have to sort these things out, right? We all have personal convictions, and we all need to form personal convictions about an endless number of issues. We have to be thoughtful. We are striving to think biblically about these things, and we need to consider a number of questions that promote honest reflection and compel us to think critically not only about each decision but the motives behind those things. And so we ask these questions, and we don't have time to go on that this morning, but will it violate my conscience? We need to ask that question. Will it set an example? Is a good example a bad example to others if I do this thing? Is it spiritually profitable for me, Will it build me up or enslave me? Do I truly have the liberty to do this or that? Or is it just a covering for my own sinful desires? Will it bring glory to God? All of those things. We need to, we need to ask those questions in order to arrive at what is best for us. Uh, and we need to sort these things out, not just so that we can make wise and God-honoring decisions, but so that we demonstrate in the process love for one another. In other words, we need to recognize that, if, that that process of us coming to a personal conviction about something, that if we're doing that, others are doing that too. We have to see it, or to say this, you have to see it as that kind of issue. You have to see that issue as something that is different from those biblical convictions and biblical beliefs. Right? So I'm going to land on something and make a decision, but Mark may be wrestling with the same thing, and he might come down on that decision, and it looks different than mine. And guess what? Mark, is, Mark can do what he does, and God be pleased with that. And I can do something different, and God can be pleased with that. Right? In other words, God can be pleased at us doing different things. Okay? So we we got to be we got to at least identify these kinds of issues so that we don't become condemning, and so that we don't minimize the realities that truly knit us together as followers of Christ. Now the fourth category is we call it personal preferences. Uh, these are the things that relate to our convenience and comfort. Okay, so there's not a lot of Bible when we come to this. So it's these are these are things decisions we make that it's not like we're going through a series of questions in our mind. These are things that we just, we're making these kind of choices all the times, but they're really, they're, they're really about convenience and comfort. 
Um, we didn't like we're building this big argument biblically as to why one thing is better than another. And so, you know, this is, this is just about what I like and what I want and what I choose, right? And, 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 and you don't want to, may not want to admit this, but the, I mean, you make a lot of these decisions, right? So when you go to the, the cupboard, you don't sit there and try to come up with a biblical argument for why you're going to choose Captain Crunch over Cheerios, right? I, it's, like, it's, a, it's, it's just a non-moral thing, right? You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't wrestle through that. That's just, a, that's just a personal preference, what you want. So we, we do this, the kind of car we drive, the you know, clothing and favorite flavor of ice cream, uh, genres of music, kinds of pets. Do we have a pet? Um, that's a question. My family's been uh, trying to turn into a, a theological discussion. My, my wife would like a puppy. And I'm trying to come up with as many Bible verses as I can, <laughs> right, as to why we don't need another, I call it a child. It's just, yeah, I got to stand strong. So I don't know if I'm going to win that, if I can get this personal preference over into that biblical beliefs category or not, probably not. Uh, so expect, those of you who are on Facebook, I guess I should expect to see at some point in the near future a picture of a puppy, you know, on my wife's Facebook page, so... The, the call here is clear, I think, when we're dealing with others. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness, empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own interests, but also the interest of others. So just don't, it, again, this is sad, folks, but we fight over these things, right? Just silly little personal preferences. It, it happens in families. You know, one sibling wants this, one sibling wants that. It's not a sin issue. What's a sin issue is the way they're treating each other. Right? It's not the thing. It's not the choice. It's the fact that the adi- they've got sinful attitudes. So that's the thing that you're trying to hone in on, I think, in those, those areas. Uh, so in light of all this, again, what I'm, what I'm attempting to emphasize is the need for us to know the difference between these various categories as well as the need for us to help others to see these distinctions. I think it might have been Mary last time or maybe it was Christy we're talking about just in it's just parents need to distinguish these things for their children as they're raising their kids. They need to make sure their kids understand the difference between personal convictions and gospel essentials, right? Or else it just muddies the waters when it comes to, to these things. They need to know the difference between when, when are mom and dad just doing something, but just personal preference, right? They're just making a decision because a decision has to be made and we don't have a lot of time. Let's make a decision, they just do that, but sometimes parent, parents convey that with the kind of authority and weight as if this is some, like, if that we don't do this, that it's a violation of the, of the mom's conscience or the dad's conscience. So they're making it a big conscience issue when really it's not. It's just a personal preference. So I'm just saying, if you don't distinguish those things for your kids, they're going to be confused about, they're going to, they're going to, right, make, turn the little rocks into big rocks, and they're going to take the big important things, the essential things, and they're going to minimize those. So we, we need to work on that as parents. Uh, we need convictions. There are things that are black and white. There are absolutes. Uh, to deny that would lead us to license and plunge us into immorality. But we also need to acknowledge there are gray areas. And to deny that would lead to legalism and I think pharisaic and judgmental attitudes in our lives. But you can see the, you can see the challenge with this, these gray areas, Right? Because in these gray areas, this, this third, this, cate- this area of personal convictions, 
there is usually a bit, there's biblical teaching that's undergirding those decisions in our lives, right? So that's the thing is that we feel like everybody should be embracing this because in our minds, we're getting there biblically. We've worked through these principles and we're trying to find that application and we just think that everybody else should apply these things like, like, like we do, right? Actually, I think in some cases it, it is simply that. It is simply the issue of application. How to apply the absolute, right, the timeless principle of Scripture. It's just how to hammer that out in your life. And what we have to remember is that your application of Scripture is not authoritative, Right? The principle of Scripture is authoritative. The interpretation of Scripture is authoritative, but not the various applications, right? So if I went to a Romans 12, 1 and 2, which Paul's saying that we're not to be like, become like the world and our thinking and our living, we're not to think like unbelievers or adopt the world's values and priorities or worldview, that's a principle, but the way in which we then hammer that out and apply that, uh, that's going to look different from one believer to, to the next. And so we have to keep that in mind, that the application of Scripture for your life has no inherent authority, right? So that outward change that happens in your life as you come to terms with a biblical truth and you're trying to you know, put legs on it, Right, and, and how does this affect my daily life? You just have to realize that that outward change that happens in your life but is not explicitly stated as an outward change in a passage has no authority. Now, some passages actually tell you what the outward application is. So sometimes Scripture will give you the principle and the author of Scripture will actually say, therefore, do this, Right? And so the, actually the, the, the writer of Scripture is giving you the application. And if that's the case, that's authoritative. But when that's not done, then you have to be careful that you don't, again, confuse those things and then impose those applications on, on others. I, I cannot impose applications in my life to your life, right? I can tell someone that they must pray because that practice is explicitly commanded in Scripture. But I cannot tell someone that they must pray at 6 o'clock every morning. Right? I can't do that, because Scripture doesn't tell us that. It doesn't give us that application. And so, again, these are things, folks, believe it or not, Christians fuss over these things. They, they, they have conflicts over these things, right? And rather than focusing on the principle... And the thing that doesn't change, they, they, they fuss and fight over the way in which they're practicing those things. And so we, we've got to, be really, we've got to be really careful there. So again, this is a lot about just making distinctions of what's what, and then if that is what it is, then what does that mean for me? And then, and then how do I relate to others? And what's the difference if someone says they're a Christian, but they don't believe one of those core doctrines versus... How do I relate to a Christian that believes those gospel essentials, but in this particular area of their life, the way they're using their money or the way they're using their time, how do I relate to them and how do I disciple them and how do I show grace to them and how do I continue to teach them and how do we continue to study the word of God together but be careful that I don't 
have this view that I'm right and they're wrong, right? So that leads us to this, I would say, this final thing before we wrap up, and that is how, how to relate to other, other Christians who have different personal convictions than we do. And the most obvious place, I think, for us to go in light of our series in Romans is Romans 14. So I want you to turn there. I want to read this section, even though our pastor has recently preached through this. There's four sermons, I think, on, on our website that, where he talked about personal convictions and liberty issues. Uh, so if you want more of this, you can go there and listen to those messages. I think they were really, really helpful. And I don't want to be repetitive here, but I just... I think it would be good for us to, to just read this entire section and then just, I just want to make some comments about it and then we'll wrap up. So Rome, Paul says this, Romans 14 verse 1, now, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God, for not, not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, or of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And then he goes on. He really keeps going on into this about... Uh, notice verse 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. He really wraps this up in verse 7. Therefore, and he goes back to this phrase he uses back in verse 1 of chapter 14, Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So these verses are about keeping peace in preference issues, right? And they're revealed by the Lord to help us Stop pushing 
our personal opinions and preferences to the point that they strain and even break relationships in the church. Uh, his commentary on Romans, Paul, John, John Calvin says this, he says, Men are readily inclined to slide from a difference of opinion into dispute and controversy. The apostle, therefore, shows how those who are of different opinions may live together without disagreement. Now, what's interesting is that when it comes to the subject of Christian freedom and how it should be exercised, being on the right or wrong side of any particular disagreement is not really the main issue for Paul. That is to say, Paul doesn't address the issue of freedom for the primary purpose of ending disagreements between believers. In fact, our assumption, if you read this passage and other passages in the New Testament that deal with this subject, our assumption ought to be that there will be legitimate strong differences of opinion in the church. So this is actually an expectation, not an exception. (laughs) I mean, Paul's not trying to say, I'm giving you principles so that you guys won't disagree. He's actually saying, I assume you're going to have these kinds of things, and this is how you are to relate to each other in light of that. So what Paul does aim at, without question here, is teaching us how to treat one another when we continue to disagree on these matters. Now, just a few comments about what it does not say, right? Because this is one of those sections of Scripture that is, I think, pulled out sometimes, and it's used as ammunition to defend one or the other. So the people that are over here that maybe are being more strict in the way that they live say, well, this is that we have a right to this, and then they sort of want to impose some of the verses, not all of them, but some of the verses on the other crowd that they perceive to be loose and you could care less about honoring God. And then you have those people over here that are enjoying their freedom and they like to lob their grenades over here on the people that live, are living a little bit more strictly and somehow justify that they have Christian liberty and they need to be... And they, and they don't go to all the verses, again, because if you put them all together, you find you, you're not, that's not the purpose of the passage. So what does this passage not say? Well, this passage does not say that all opinions regarding matters of conscience are equally valid. Okay? It doesn't say that all opinions regarding matters of conscience are equally valid. In fact, as Paul makes clear, the strong Christians in this particular context were those who rightly understood their freedom from the ritual requirements of the law while the weak Christians were those who mistakenly perceived themselves to still be bound by these requirements. And what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't stay neutral on that, right? In fact, he boldly aligns himself with the strong position, according to chapter 14, verse 14, and chapter 15, verse 1. He basically says, this is where I'm at. So my assumption is that because Paul does that, there, there is a position that, in this case, was more biblically accurate than the other. And Paul did not choose political correctness and just decide to say, I'm not going to say where I'm at on this. Paul said, no, I'll tell you where I'm at on this. Liberty. Right? But then he doesn't just say, that's not all that he says. Right? And yet, so, so Paul's main goal, even though he comes down on this... His main goal was not to correct the weaker brother's errors, but to foster unity in the church despite the differences of opinion. But he tells us where he is. And there is a reason, folks, why Scripture or why Paul says strong and weak. 
I mean, you can't ignore the fact that he is actually using <laughs> those terms to categorize these different people. Now, again, we're not talking about the strong Christians. That's not the way Paul uses that word. These are the strong Christians and these are the weak Christians, right? That's, you, you do understand that's not... Paul's talking about on this issue, there are those who are strong in this, this case when it comes to conscience, and then there are those who are weak on this issue. But at any given issue or topic, you might be on the other side, right? That is to say that if, if we talked about these issues of Christian liberty, I could throw one out there and you in that situation may end up being in the category of the weak, but then I could give you another situation and you might land over here with the strong. So it's not saying characteristically these are weakling Christians and these are the strong and mighty Christians. It's just talking about how they how they operate when it comes to to their conscience before God. This passage also does not say that believers should go against their own conscience in order to accommodate believers who disagree. Right? So if you, again, if if this is a conscience issue for you, then you stand before God, you hold the line. You, You do not violate your conscience in order to accommodate other people. Okay, so passage doesn't say that. This passage also does not teach that moral strictness proves a believer is weak or an unburdened conscience proves that he is strong. Christians may and should enjoy their freedom in Christ, but they are also commanded in the Bible to pursue holiness. So Christian freedom and Christian duty and virtue are not mutually exclusive. Okay, So you might see a believer that appears to be strict in his life but who is really a careful Christian just trying to be faithful and obedient to God, and he does not need to be pitied, okay? So just because you see someone exercising strictness, don't get the impression that they're weak. That could actually be someone that is, in, by Paul's definition, a strong person, a mature, even mature believer, but that strictness is honestly just, they're just trying to be obedient, Right? On the other hand, you might see a believer who appears to be carefree in his life, but who is really careless and one who is sinning with an unburdened conscience because he's ignorant, misinformed, or even unconcerned about what pleases the Lord. So even though Paul says, I'm in the camp of the strong because I I know my liberty in Christ, don't assume that when you see someone who appears to have liberty in Christ that that means that they understand what that is and that they are actually pursuing holiness. Because they, and especially, we talk a lot about this, this generation this, that's coming up, I mean, this Christian liberty thing is thrown out there all the time, right? But it's all selfishness. I mean, that, this generation coming up is just using Christian liberty as some blanket to throw over every indulgence that they want to pursue. You know, don't tell me I shouldn't do that or go there or say that because I'm a Christian and I have liberty in Christ. Right, So we, 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 we got to be careful about when we just see somebody's life and the decisions they make, we have to be careful that we don't assume where they might be on this spectrum. Okay? This passage also does not say that the strong Christian should hide the exercise of their liberty from the weak. So Paul's not telling the strong to exercise their liberty secretly. Right, so, because it's assumed in the passage that the weak know what the strong do. And it's assumed in the passage that the strong are seeing and talking about or somehow observing what 
the weak are doing. And so he's not telling us to sort of secretly live our Christian life, right? And don't do anything. Don't let other Christians know what you're doing because I think that would create even more distinct separations and a unity that was is sort of, you might say, artificial. So Paul was urging the strong to to not publicly emphasize or demand their freedom in ways that would draw unnecessary attention to the convictions of the weak and portray those individuals as foolish or naive or causing them to feel pressure to conform. So we're not just supposed to go into our hobbit hole and do these things. It's not, it's not about that. There's an assumption that we're going to be living life we're going we're gonna to be connecting with other believers, spending time with other believers. They're going to see what we do. They're going to observe what we do. We're going to talk about what we do and why we do it. We're going to have that level of interaction. Uh, this passage also doesn't teach that Christians should refrain from judging a believer that is engaging in obvious sin. Okay, So be, being accepting of other Christians' differing opinions and lifestyles doesn't necessarily mean that we condone what may clearly be sinful lifestyles. Paul does prohibit judging in chapter 14, but only in matters of conscience, right? He says nothing that would restrict us from judging ungodly or immoral behavior in another professing Christian's life. And then maybe one more. This passage passage doesn't say that the convictions of the weakest brother should determine the acceptable exercise of liberty in a local church. Again, we're usually talking about a situation where the strong believer or the strong believe there are several legitimate ways of handling a given preference issue and the weak believe there is only one way of handling the issue and where all the options are permissible. So the question is, what does a church do? Should a, church, should a local church radically alter its practice for the sake of, of a weaker Christian? And then I guess the follow-up question for that would be, if that's the case, then when would the restriction of others' liberty stop? So I think there's a danger that you take a church, say, of our size, and we have to find out who's the weakest brother on an issue and then bring down... the. Every, we have to restrict everybody in the church, their liberty, down to that lowest denominator, I guess. Um. And I would just say it wouldn't stop, right? It wouldn't stop until the church was reduced to practicing Christian freedom only according to the most restrictive conviction of the weakest member. And I, and I just, I, I, that, that cannot be how Paul intended his teaching in this passage to be applied because there are places specifically like Colossians where Paul tells them to not, to be careful about these outward displays or being thinking of, of Sabbath days or thinking about food or things in certain ways. He's actually cautioning them about these man-made practices, right, and the effect that that has on, on the body of Christ. So I'm just saying, we, the reason I bring that up is because people come into the church sometimes and they actually use this passage to sort of make you, to force a group of people to come down to where they are on an issue. So let's just be honest. A person could come into our church this morning and say, you know what, I don't see a lot in the New Testament about instruments being used in worship. I don't really see an example of that. I mean, yeah, it's in the the Old Testament, but I just think because the New Testament doesn't really mention instruments that we shouldn't, the only voice, the only instrument is the voice. And so I, I, I think that the church needs to get rid of 
whatever, the keyboard or the violin or, or whatever it is. And I'm saying, I don't, think it's, I don't think that's the purpose. I don't think Paul intended for someone to come into the church and to say, I think this in this preference issue and everybody else needs to change what they're doing to accommodate me. That's not the purpose of, of the text. So what does it say? What does this passage say? Well, it does say that in matters of conscience, again, these are personal convictions regarding practices that are not... that are neither explicitly commanded nor prohibited in the Bible, that in these matters of conscience, Christians must refrain from judging or condemning believers whose opinions differ from their own, and they must refrain from exercising their freedom in ways that would pressure or embolden another believer to sin by going against his or her conscience. The bottom line here, folks, and Shane made this point, the bottom line here is love. Okay? Paul, you could go all the way back to chapter 12. Paul brings this issue up of, of love, of having unhypocritical love. He mentions it about loving your neighbor, and then he just goes right into chapters 14 and 15, really saying this is a way in, this is a way in which we love one another. We, we can love one another in these areas. So, so the weaker brother must not become judgmental or divisive by insisting that the whole church adopts his personal view, and the stronger brother must not marginalize the weaker brother or ridicule his restrictive views or pressure him to go against his, his own conscience. Other believers are to be loved, accepted, and treated with respect. And that's the thing. If you go through those two chapters, you read through those again, the things that should pop are God is accepted. God has accepted him. You stand before the Lord, right? And the Lord is able to make you stand. You will appear before the judgment seat of God. Don't use your liberty, right? Don't, don't abuse that. In a, don't, don't get confused as to what's really important. What's really important is the spiritual fruit and the spiritual growth in another person's life. Don't destroy that work of God in another person's life for the sake of food, don't elevate food that way. Don't elevate clothing that way. Don't elevate material things to the point where you're so demanding your personal freedoms that you would destroy the Spirit's work in another person's life. Think more highly of that person. Right? Think more highly of God's kingdom. And the fact that, again, folks, the Lord put this body together. Right? I mean, you need to take care of it. Okay? You, need to, you need to show grace uh, it's going to require discernment. It's going to require wisdom and humility. This is a, you, these are the issues that you are just constantly thinking about. And again, you're going to change. You may not think you're going to change, but for a lot of you, within five to ten years, you're going to have a personal conviction that you would think right now today that you would never change on. And in five to ten years, you're going to say, yeah, I've kind of changed in that area. And it's going to change in different ways. Some of you are going to loosen up... <laughs> Some of you are going to get more strict in any given area, and that's fine. That's fine. You stand before the Lord. You do what you do without doubting. You believe, right? Faith. You, you trust that this is the right thing for you, but you have to be able to distinguish this from other things so that you don't condemn and judge and cause division. So always thinking about the glory of God, always thinking about that day when you'll give an account to Him, always thinking about the good of the church, always thinking about how your actions will affect others, 
always giving others grace in the gray areas, never violating your own conscience and never allowing these kinds of issues to divide us as Christians. Right? So we sin sometimes against others in this area. And when we do, right, we spent 10 weeks on it. We know what to do. When we sin, right, in the way that we treat others, even if it's in these things, right, we confess, we repent, we seek forgiveness. <laughs> and when others sin against us and they come and they confess, we forgive, right? And we forgive in advance, right, in attitude. And then if they don't see their sin and it has affected their relationship and it has changed the way that we are relating to them and we cannot overlook it, right, then we go to them in love, we reprove them, but we, we give the right up to, to be their judge, right? We relinquish that right. God is their judge. We go. We lovingly rebuke. Again, they repent. We extend in that relationship, in that moment, forgiveness. That's the transaction side. We know what to do, right? I just think this particular area, is, it causes a lot of problems in the church. And again, I think with social media, what even makes this more complicated is that we can say things out there in the social media world. We can express our personal convictions about things and get a sense of who is on our side and who's not on our side, who pushes back and who doesn't. And then when we get to church on Sunday, it's easy to gravitate to the people that we already have discovered through social media are in the same camp on a particular issue that we're in and to avoid or judge or whatever those people that we got that pushback from, right? Or who challenged us in those things. But what we need to do is not let those things be the main things, right? We need to be faithful in those areas, We need to have a clear conscience before God in those areas. But what we come together to do today, this morning, is to celebrate the gospel, right? And to celebrate the diversity. We know we're different in these areas. And we celebrate the fact that the body has been put together the way that it has. Christ is our Lord. We're different members of the same body. And when we worship in just a minute, the focus of our worship needs to be on One Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one God and Father, right? That's what we're here to do, to focus on those essential things, not to get sidetracked and derailed and allow those preference issues and personal convictions be things that split and splinter the body in the relationships, okay? Hopefully that's helpful to you. Uh, I'm going to be gone again, unfortunately, next week. Uh, I'll be down at the ACBC conference, Biblical Counseling Conference in Jacksonville. Uh, So I'll be out next Sunday, but the next Sunday after that, we're starting Hosea. So that's the next series we'll be doing. It'll take us at least through the end of the year, if not into January. So if you want to be reading that, kind of getting prepared for that, somebody will sub in next week, and then when I get back, we'll start Hosea. And that'll carry us for the next three or four months. Okay? All right, folks, thanks for your time.